this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. This is the Book Riot Podcast. It's a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. Today is Friday, December 9th, 2022. I'm Jeff O'Neill here with Rebecca Shinsky coming to you from bookriot.com. We continue to sort of clear the mechanism of 2022 content. Um, I think you have heard us say that this episode is going to be the best of the rest. But we're switching it up. That's going to be on the Patreon, and this is the books of the year. Not our favorite books, not the best books, but what were the books of the year? And we can maybe get into some semantic discourse about what we mean by that. If you want the best of the rest, in which Rebecca and I talk about uh, underwear, um, push pop things you put on your face, um, that's really it. That we talk, No, we, we talked about some other things. That's on the Patreon book, right? Uh, excuse me, patreon.com slash book, right? Podcast. But it's books of the year time. Let's spend a minute on what this means. We haven't discussed what this is, though we've done this before, so we kind of know what it is. But what books were the books of the year? If you were going to tell the story of 2022 in books, what book or books would you pick? You can probably tell already some slippage in book of the year to books of the year. I'm tipping my hand about how I'm going about this or how I thought about this. You know, what made waves, what's going to be notable, what sold the whole bunch, what um, created conversation, controversy, or, or at least some sort of awareness around a book, because it still is hard to do with books. Um, and what were the books of the year? And so, Rebecca, are you on the same page? Is that how you thought about it? what What wrinkles yes. would you add to, to that? I thought about pretty much those same things. What was in the zeitgeist? What was a big bestseller? What did people really like? What were sort of emerging surprises, maybe on, I don't know, National Book Awards long lists that gave certain men (laughs) existential crises? (laughs) Um, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm fine. I am totally fine. And some of the intersection of pop culture and literary culture moments that we saw this year, um, Mm -hmm. along with like books that became surprisingly popular, I think, surprising to the publishers in that they sold out and became difficult to find. <laughs> for a period. A, I mean, that's a sign of overperformance. We don't have enough damn mm-hmm. copies. Yeah, but those kind of, those same ideas that you were talking about, books of the year as in, what do we talk about a lot this year? What might we talk about in the future when we look back at 2022? Mm-hmm. And I think one thing to hang a lantern on about anytime we do a books of the year situation is that some of these are things that are big stories this year and that we might never think about or care again, care about That's again. Right. Like five years from now, we'll be like, what was that book? And 10 years from now, we will not remember why it was a big deal. And that's, I guess, or you will and you'll be like, oh yeah, that was a huge deal. Right. That was a like, huge deal. It led to nothing. We don't talk about it anymore. Yeah. Um, And certainly a lot helped along this year by this little app that I I don't know if you've heard of it or not, but it's called TikTok. Um, Is that the one where you swipe left or right to um, initiate romantic overtures with people? Is that that no? I think it's it's a metronome. Oh, it's a metronome. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. it's for the the flautists out there, they can keep time. Um, (laughs) Yes, more flautists flautists out there. (laughs) Turns out this thing turns out very well. 
Uh, anyway, okay, so we'll get into that all that in a minute, but we're going to do our first sponsor break and then talk actual authors and titles. Today's episode is brought to you by Sourcebooks Landmark. From the best-selling author of The Seven and a Half Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle comes a new mystery. A fog has swept the planet, killing anyone it touched except for the island where villagers and scientists live in harmony. The villagers content to do what they're told by the scientists. But then one of the beloved scientists is found brutally stabbed to death, and they realize the security system around the island has malfunctioned and has wiped everyone's memories of exactly what happened the night before. So someone on the island is a murderer, and they don't even know it. Best-selling author Stuart Turton is a major voice in the mystery space, The Seven and a Half Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle, and his second novel, The Devil and the Dark Water, have sold over 450,000 copies and become a TikTok phenomenon. He's received fantastic reviews from best-selling authors in major outlets. Make sure to check out his latest work, The Last Murder at the End of the World. And thanks again to Sourcebooks Landmark for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by World Editions, publisher of Salamalik by Khaled Alasmail. In this unflinching story about Arab masculinity and homoeroticism, Farat, a Syrian in his early 20s, visits Sibki Park in Damascus, one of the city's most popular cruising areas. There he learns about the Hammam's secret meeting places for gay men located throughout the old city. So inside these public baths, the air is thick with the scent of bay laurel soap and naked men hide in the steam. Ferd faces sometimes violent disapproval from all levels of society, regime, religion, the man in the street, you name it. And yet he manages to find the love he's been seeking just before his world collapses and he's forced to flee. Find out more about Salamlik by Khaled Alasmail, translated from the Arabic by Larry Price at IndiePubs.com slash products slash Salamlik. That's S-E-L-A-M-L-I-K. And thanks again to World Editions, publisher of Salamlik by Khaled Alasmail for sponsoring this episode. Um, I, I'd like to dispense with the elephant in the room. <laughs> Good. Which is that the story the story of the year is Colleen Hoover. Yes. Sells, right? And she did have a new, new book this year. It came out a couple of weeks ago. It sold a whole bunch of copies. It's selling okay, not as well as you might think for some. I mean, there was a lot of pent-up demand. Um, it seems like we might be a little on the other side of the Colleen Hoover phenomenon, at least. Or maybe it's crested. I don't know what the elevated level is going to be. Again, still four of the top ten best-selling of the books of the week last week. So that... We're coming from such a stratosphere that merely being at the mountaintop feels like a come down, but that's yeah. where we are still. But it's a little, it, it's not when she had six or seven in the middle of the year. I don't think it starts with, uh, you could put starts with us at, as a, I guess, a, a, a metonym for all the Colleen Hoover stuff. But the big story of book sales this year was Colleen Hoover. And it's actually not about her front list. It's about her back list and the whole thing. So I don't know what to do with that. Do, should, yeah. we, should we put it in? If we're building a bookshelf of the year, we have to pick actual titles and take a photo to put on some uh, social media app. Do we put it ends with us there as a 
placeholder, or or how would you go about this? How do you think about this? Or did you even think about Colleen Hoover at all in this? Oh yeah, no, I thought about Colleen Hoover. It ends. With, I was yeah. going to ask if you wanted to start at the top of the list or the bottom in terms of like the biggest. Well, I'm not the sure biggest the bottom stories. or top. It's just yeah. every, it's just breathing and, it. It's just everywhere. Right, it's, and so this was either going to be the first thing or the last thing that I talked about right. this week. And I went with like inside the framework of books of the year. I went with mm-hmm. it ends with us. If I had to pick one, because that was the big book of the Colleen Hoover books this year. It was the one that I saw out in the world the most. You saw it out in the world. People told us stories about it. There were people on planes reading it everywhere. It seems to be the one that got like the book club juice. I think many of them got the book club juice, but that's the one this year. Story would have been different last year. And obviously lots of bleed over into all the other Colleen Hoover books. I really would love some like magical data about how many people who read one Colleen Hoover book read two, how many people who read two read four, <laughs> you know, like what does that graph look like? Um, well, it's so like, the, it's like just... the COVID R number, right? Like is it R1? It's, it was R1.5 right, right. or something like that for, for these yeah, titles. It would, it would be fascinating to see what that was like. But if I had to pick one, I would make it, it ends with us, but I really would just do like if we were doing our year in review what are the stories of the year right. i mean that's just inescapably colleen hoover for sure which i don't think we have on our docket actually the stories of the year so that's a that's a weird lacuna for us we usually do that i think end of the year patreon getting a little uh, wrapped up and everything else maybe we'll come back in january and, and look back at the year yeah i think i don't remember when we've had this conversation before ever having a backlist title on this list no um, that's a great point and I think that tells, I mean, I think it's so unusual that it warrants an unusual selection. So I, I think we put it ends with us on. I, I don't think there's any. Yeah, cool. I mean, I think that's you right. could put it starts with us just because it's the front list title. If you want to say it had to be new books, but this is our list. And I think we're telling the story of the books of the year. And if it's backlist, so be it. Um, we've just never had that occasion before because yeah. things don't come roaring back like this, even with the big adaptation. I mean, maybe there's a world in which you could have said... You know, if some of the TV adaptations were bigger hits and it it brought people awareness of the book and they ripped through them, um, I don't really think people were doing that, even with like Mm -mm. Shadow and Bone last year. Everything else is big enough. And there's so many adaptations that there's not enough room for people like, oh, that's a book. Let me go check that out. Um, Crawdads came out this year, the movie, but... It's, we're on the other side of the Crawdads phenomenon. It's not one of the books of the year. It was one of the books of last when year or 2020. Crawdads was the only other example I was thinking of. It wasn't backlist no. in the year that it was really big, but no. it started, like, the wave of that book really started building in November of the year that it came out, and then it was the big book for the following year. So it was right. one of those rare titles that it was really big in the year that it was not released, but it was still hardcover. It was still mm-hmm. front list. I can't yes. remember a time where the thing that was taking over the literary zeitgeist was a book that wasn't new this year or last year. Six years old. Six mm-hmm. years old. All right. So we're putting it starts, uh, excuse me, it ends with us on there. Um, how do you want to go from there? Or do, what do you have on your I don't, Let's just randomly pick some things from yeah, the list, I pick guess. Some, pick um, something. Uh, one of the ones that I guess I was, I knew it would be popular among bookish folks, but I was surprised to see it kind of go so wide was tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow by gabrielle zevin um i think because yeah aj fickery was hugely popular all over the place but then her next book was it young jane young um that didn't that wasn't as big and tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow right it's a it's a long book it's like close to 500 pages maybe a little bit longer 
Um, I didn't know if that would turn some folks off, but it has that great like 90s nostalgia factor. It has a lot mm-hmm. of video game stuff going on. Her writing is really wonderful. And as we talked about kind of ad nauseum here and on the Patreon, we both really just sunk into reading it. It got us, even though we didn't end up loving the book. Um, but Barnes & Noble picked it as the book of the month in the, rele- in the, yeah, in the release month. I think it's going to be popular for gifting. This is one of those that I think in five or 10 years will be like, I remember when that came out, but I don't think we're going to see this make you know, a lasting mark on the literary landscape. But that was a book I saw everywhere. It's creeping into the people in my sort of like peripheral circles who aren't book people, but who read a little bit sometimes. And they've heard about it. It's been recommended to them. They're seeing it on lists. It's on several of the big publications, best books of the year list. Amazon's best Just, book of the year, number one yeah, for Amazon. Yeah, which... I have some quibbles, but whatever. Amazon can do what Amazon's going to do. They can do what they um, do. <laughs> right. They can get their own podcast. Uh, and I, that was just one that as I was thinking about this after Colleen Hoover, it was one of the first ones that popped into my mind without having to like go back and look at notes or consult any of the stuff we talked about over the course of the year. That just feels very top of mind right now. Why did you have it here? Yeah. Uh, similar reasons. I feel like it's got juice. Um it's got juice. It's going to be, it's pretty recommendable, which is something. Mm-hmm. And it's good. Um, it's in, It does something interesting, right? Especially That's towards true. the middle and end. It covers some ground we haven't covered before. Um, you know, I think there's a world in which maybe we think more fondly of it in the future than we do now because stuff we haven't seen before. It's, it's always possible. But I think it was multiple picks. It's on a bunch of the lists. And then even more than that, the kind of people that pay attention to lists before the lists come out were even reading this. You know, um, people that we know really like this book. I think it represent. It also represents well with my. I guess I'm going to do my my pick that that kind of goes alongside of it of genre, literary genre hmm. is now commercial, which is now new. I think. Yeah, it's, new it's fascinating. I think it's going to have a really interesting life in paperback. Yeah. I don't know, is it going to become, I mean, Story Life of J.D. Fikri is such a, you, you know, you, you, can't, you don't print unicorns, right? You can't <laughs> say you're going to get unicorns twice. You can't replicate I'm having that. a hard time coming up with a comp for what this is going to be in three or four years. Um, so I don't know if that's good or bad. Um, the one I'm going to put that's sort I'm going to side along, I think we like this a little bit better than, than Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow, though not as well as it seems like the lists like it. And Publishers Lunch does a thing where they, they kind of aggregate and score appearances of books in, in major lists. Mm. And then, you know, how many times they appear and where they are on the list. And um, I don't have it in front of me, largely because I don't want to plagiarize this good list. Go subscribe to Publishers to Lunch. This this, this, into this kind of thing. But the number one on that list is Our Missing Hearts by Celeste mm, mm-hmm. which I found pretty surprising because um, we liked it. Um, our Patreon comments were pretty mixed, I yeah, would say, at best, which I found interesting. Um, and I haven't seen much, I feel like there's much more and more, there's more tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow ripples out there than I've seen with Our Missing Heart. So it continues to sell pretty well. Um, maybe it's the Reese Book Club sticker that you get some legs off of that. Again, literary genre, it's selling pretty well. It's good. Neither of these blew our mind. And I really want something to blow my mind if I'm putting it on the top of my list or in my top five. These are really good books. They're not my favorite books of the year. But I think they have crossover appeal. Um, Celeste Ng went outside of her comfort zone, 
but I'm not sure that it's a really challenging book in a way that mm-hmm. I want a challenge something like this to be. Like it's not Claire in the Sun, which is challenging in a lot of interesting ways. This one is, I mean, look, fascism is fascism is bad. Okay, yeah, I, good. Let's let's work through this and. Um, discrimination against Asian Americans is a huge topic. I'm really glad she chose to put that in the front and center. But beyond that, I didn't know that we were really covering new ground um, in a lot of different ways. That was very, very good. And Tomorrow and Tomorrow, I think even for my money, maybe felt even more different. It's more towards Candy House, which is what I would pick in this slot for literary experimental commercial fiction. It's weird that Jennifer Egan is commercial fiction, actually, but that's what I'm looking for. I want to really push out mm-hmm. there. These are both comfortable enough for book clubs to pick up, and that's why they sell like they do versus other things, but that's where I am. So Our Missing Hearts by Celestine is on I, my list. For book I club. also had that on my list, and I was thinking about how I'm not surprised to not have seen it, I think, as many places as I saw the first two Celestine books yeah. or as much buzz because the, it is, I, I 100% agree with like all of your critical analysis there. It's not as challenging as I want a big book of the year to be, but I do think it is more progressive and it is explicitly more political than her first two. And that mm-hmm. is going to be challenging to a certain subsection of her readers and it will turn a certain subsection of them off. And just, yeah. you know, have less conversation and fewer sales maybe than those first two because there's a barrier to entry there. You have to be open to these ideas and willing to read about them. And we just know that some people aren't. I felt like watching the media around Our Missing Hearts, I was seeing more about Celeste Ng than I was about the book, which I'm down for. I really like her. She's interesting and smart yes. and has a lot of perspective. They did a great job. Uh, her publisher, I think it's Riverhead, did a great job with her tour. Like she was on big mm-hmm. mainstream, big mainstream podcasts, um, stuff that isn't explicitly bookish, but is just a popular show that has a bajillion listeners. I was really glad to see that. I would like more people to be aware of Celeste Ng, uh, but it felt it was really interesting to me that it felt like the story was more Celeste Ng than it was about the book, and I think it might be because the subject matter is going to turn off some readers. And I guess a meta note is none of the books on my list this year really are big challenging books in the way that I want a book of the year to be. No, but I think no. I think that's a function of like, you can't be big and challenging. It's very rare to be big and challenging and also super popular. You can be like, I think maybe the Underground Railroad is the last time we saw that. It's pretty uncommon. Yeah. For a book that's challenging in a in the terms of like literary craft and subject matter to break through in a popular culture, super bestseller, everybody's talking about it, and then you're going to get a, an impressive adaptation kind of way. Yeah, I I did a I did a similar thing. I like thinking what books that were kind of meet my um, I got to do a little work that I like. You know, it feels good to to work mm-hmm. on them. That would be books of the year contenders. Like just trying to think back, even the last twenty years. If you go all the way back, probably Paradise in 90... Was that 2000? 98, 2000? I can't remember which Oh, yeah. Par- it, to the, it was 2000, the Toni Morrison. I think it had yeah. just come out when I was taking that course on her in college. Yeah, Yeah. so right around there. That's the first one. I mean, I was just old enough to even pay attention to things. I think The Road would have fit that. It's a page turner, mm-hmm. but it's very difficult, and it has its own stylistic. And even the end is difficult and challenging in its own way. And I think Goon Squad, to bring up Egan again, that would have been a book of the year when that came out. And that's a difficult book. It's not as hard as 
I don't know, something else. It's, it's not art writing, experimental writing. Well, it is, but it's not Ulysses, let's put it that way. But it's pretty interesting, and it, it really pushes the boundaries. And Candy House does the same thing, um, but Candy House did not have the wider discourse around it than, than as Goon Squad is. And maybe it's because people knew Goon Squad exists, and you and I talked about this. Is it, is it that different from Goon Squad? Yes and no, which means kind of no, right? Mm-hmm. That's the answer <laughs> um, to that question. Um, yeah, I had that. Uh, I was thinking about that, too. So, so far, we've got Tomorrow, Tomorrow, and Tomorrow, Our Missing Hearts, and It Ends With Us. Do you have any more fiction on your list? Yeah. I've got two more fiction titles. I have, what, let's what see, one, two. I have three more fiction. Okay. Um, Can I guess what we might have in common next? Sure, yeah. Um, did you did you end up with lessons in chemistry? I did. Your, I did. Your, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of I'm surprised too. It's you know it was Barnes and Noble Booksellers Book of the Year. Um, I've seen it on several end of year lists. I think it's continuing to sell pretty well. I do think it's helped along by a really fun cover. <laughs> like that's a book that will call it, to it you. It makes it seem easier to approach. I, I agree. It does. I think that's important. Yeah. It looks it looks lighter and fluffier than it is. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a callback to like the Where'd You Go Bernadette cover um, and several other trends that we've seen. Yeah. It's it's as we've talked about here and on the Patreon. The subject matter is is tricky and a big piece of it. Like it's a very explicitly feminist story uh, about a woman who had to give up her career in science because she was sexually harassed and assaulted by coworkers. And it was what like the seventies. It was early on mm-hmm. uh, in women starting to gain traction in that area of academic of academic life and and public life. Feminism has come a long way since then, and obviously we have a long way to go. But I was really, I was really surprised by reading it. It was one of the more fun and and not be, not because it was fluffy, but fun just because it was different what yep. she does um, in there. And you and I had a conversation that was like, "What is this book? How do you talk about <laughs> the genre of this book? How would you try to pitch this to someone?" Because she's doing things like. There is there are chapters from the dog's perspective, and it doesn't seem gimmicky. It just makes sense in the way that she's writing it. We get her at work. We are. It's just very believable the things that happen to her, even though they're kind of unbelievable uh, mm-hmm. outcomes for most people in their lives. It's just I thought it was a really it was a really good book, um, a fun work of fiction that had some teeth. It had some st- some substance. It had a lot to say, and I felt like Bonnie Garmus was really clever in how she sort of snuck that in. She snuck a lot of good, important stuff into a package that looks like oh, just pick this up and like read it on the beach while you're drinking <laughs> something pink with an umbrella in it. Yeah. And I mean, I really respect and love that when authors do it when they're like. And I think that implies a lot of trust for the reader that, oh, you might be picking this up thinking you're going to get something light and fluffy, and I'm actually going to present you with some stuff that is real life, but hard, and we're going to make it fun along the way, so let's go do it. That's a, it's, it's a bunch of hard bells to ring all at the same time, and I thought she did a really nice job. Yeah, it has a, it has a kind of mixed genre in tonality, and we talked about this before, that's unusual, um, and... I think your mileage may vary about whether or not you think it holds together, or is this kind of a new way of of doing it? And, um, you know, interestingly, that sexual assault in Lessons in Chemistry and It Ends With Us are treated as, they become fulcrums, but they go in different ways. One, it becomes, mm-hmm. it takes over the story in a way that you don't expect. 
And I think in Lessons in Chemistry, it certainly affects the story, but it doesn't overwhelm the story. Yes. It's like something that happens to the character, but it's not the thing that happens to the character, which is um, fascinating to see. And, and maybe an expected or a, a natural, but for me, unforeseen downstream effect of the Me Too movement is multiple ways of discussing sexual assault and representing it in, in culture. Whereas before Me Too, I think there was sort of one way of doing it. Right. Mm-hmm. It was it was horrible and traumatic and rare and shameful. And I don't know, it, it was like really, really, really big deal. And it was uncommon to see it represented. But when it was represented, it became like the Schindler's list of someone's life, like that kind of trauma in someone's life. And for many people, that's is and maybe it's even for most people. But I think one thing that's happening here is that it's part of so many people's lives and so many people are living lives that to say, well, if this happens to you, your life is over and you're a shell of a person, A, is a bummer, and B, is not true. Mm-hmm. People go on and they live and they try to deal with it and people have various degrees of success doing that. But I think both of these books are kind of representative of this. These are going to be representations and these are stories that are going to be parts of a lot of stories and maybe more stories than they already are and that means there's going to be a, I guess, a, a, a diversification in, in the way that they're incorporated into stories. So maybe that's something mm-hmm. to, to look at them together yeah. and think about. I think that's a great point. And it stands in really sharp contrast to something like where the crawdads sing that is a like female yeah. revenge fantasy. <laughs> and mm-hmm. the way that that character takes her agency back is by, I mean... Don't get mad at me for spoiling where the crawdads sing, folks. It's been a couple of years. <laughs> she murdered him. She did it. <laughs> like she yeah. gets her agency back by also committing violence, and that's an option. And I won't even say I don't think it's justified. <laughs> like I understand how somebody might arrive mm-hmm. there, but this character takes her agency back in response to this trauma in in a much more empowered and forward-looking, positive way. And that is not to say you have to think positively about your sexual assault. Not at all. Um, But I do think what you're saying there about fiction showing a much more wide variety of the ways that people respond or can respond or might imagine responding to horrible things that happen in life that shouldn't happen, and we can all agree on that, but there is much more than one way to handle it. And as we talk about how important fiction is for representation of experience, I think this is a part of it, that people can see, can see themselves in different characters and they can see a character take an experience like that and acknowledge, in this character's case, that she is not going to live the life that she planned on. She yep. hates that. And when an opportunity comes up to make the most of something else and like kind of take her power and really exercise her agency, she's going to take it and refuse to be defined by that thing. You don't have to respond that way. It's important that we see that you can and that stories are right. told about that. Um, my next one is the only book on this list I haven't read. Okay. Can you guess what it is? Is it the Rabbit Hutch? It's fiction. It is the Rabbit Hutch. <laughs> it's also on mine. I mean, right? <laughs> I, I don't know. You, you've talked about it on the show. I have it on my shelf. I'm going to read it over break. Um, I think my interest in it has been cooled by your reaction to it. I, I'm not totally off of it, but I think it says something in a book where I've still got 95 front list titles on my list of things I'd like to read for this year. I will read it. It wins the big award, right? A lot mm-hmm. of people have talked about it. It's a debut author, 
And this happens from time to time where you get, I mean, I guess, I guess Lessons in Chemistry, was that a debut novel? Did you say that? I think I have Oh, I think it is. Is that right? I think it is a debut. Um, from an older person, but still a debut. Um, but the rabbit hutch is, do we have a, do we have a new um, star in the literary fiction firmament? And we want, sometimes we get them, sometimes it is Zadie Smith, and sometimes it's Tia Obrett, who has a, a, a writing career, but her name is not above the fold um, on her own books, right? <laughs> it's not where you're buying a, um, a Tia Obrett novel. And, and it happens from time to time. And this one, it could be, it sounds like it's pretty interesting. A lot of people really seem to enjoy it and find it fascinating. Um, but I think this is the, as close as I'm going to have, as close as you could get on a list to this, like the cool kids pick. I think this is the cool kids pick of the book that I'm going to have. I agree. My notes for it said it's the literary criticism darling of the year. Um, You know, really broke out with the National Book Awards long list. I had seen a couple people talk about it before then, but that I think was the thing that catapulted it. I'd be, if we could A-B test the universe, I'd be super curious about if it doesn't make the National Book Awards long list, does it end up on like the New York Times list or PW or Amazon or some of those other big ones? How much Streisand affecting was going on there. And I know so far I seem to be in the outlier response to this. I'm really glad you're going to read it because I'll be super curious about your response right. and almost more interested if we have a different take <laughs> on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, that was on my list as well. It's like the big surprise, like, like that book came out, it's a debut novel. It's weird. Mm-hmm. The, the, the writing is not experimental, but just weird and different. It's about a, a young woman who is anticipating like, what happens to her in the couple of days before a horrible, violent act is visited upon her. And yeah. that's a hard sell. It's, I, I would love to hear from a bookseller, like, if you are hand-selling the rabbit hutch, how? <laughs> like, what are you saying yeah. to people about it? Um, but I think the literary... You don't need to now. Not when it has a National Book Award. Right, that's, that's you true. You don't have to hand-sell that stuff anymore. That's true. Um, really interesting to see it and one of those where i was like what is this going to be about i am fascinated i would i would love to hear i think more conversation about this is where i wish that like the national book award came out with uh, give me like 500 words on why um i would love to hear (laughs) i would love to know that it's amazing between that and the nobel it's like we're gonna give you three sentences and then go back behind the golden door (laughs) Uh, but at you know, least with the Nobel, it's like, oh, you figured out how to split atoms. <laughs> <laughs> or you've been right. I mean, in the literature thing, there's 40 books, right. you know, that, you know, it's right. like even you are Tony Morrison. Well. Got it. <laughs> yeah. You, you and like there's going to be critical literature and reviews and everything. So you can go get the supplementary too. But on a debut novel like this. Now, now, again, don't mis- mistake me. This is not an underground pick. This is a Knopf title. So mm-hmm. it's like it's still mainstream. But um, for a books of the year. Um, where, again, unless it really comes like a meteor out of nowhere, you need at least that kind of platform um, to even get to this level to be considered for these kinds of awards. Uh, my last fiction pick, and it's not as appearing as many lists as I thought, and I think be- some of that is because it's 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 real pretty high fantasy is Babel by Arthur mm, Wang, which that's I also finished on mine. recently. Is that, the, that's, is that the only book you haven't read on your list? Do you have any other books you haven't read on your list? Uh, that is the only one on my big list that I haven't read. And then okay. I have a couple like kind of also ran contenders that I haven't read. Today's episode is brought to you by Thirsty by Jazz Hammonds. 
College student Blake and her girlfriend have one goal, join the exclusive sorority that promises connections to a network of trailblazing women of color. Now, Ella's acceptance is a sure thing. She's a daughter of a Serena Society alum. After all, Blake, on the other hand, lacks Ella's pedigree and her confidence. Luckily, though really unluckily, she finds courage at the bottom of a liquor bottle. When she drinks, she's bold and funny, and as pledging intensifies, so does Blake's drinking. Ella assures her that she's fine, partying hard is what it takes, but with her future on the line, Blake must decide how far she's willing to go to achieve glittering dreams of success. Now, just so you know, Jazz Hammonds is the 2023 winner of the Critics Scott King John Steptoe Award for New Talent for We Deserve Monuments, and We Deserve Monuments was an Amazon Best Books of the Year and Barnes & Noble Best Books of the Year for 2023, so suffice to say, y'all should check this new one out. Thanks again to Thirsty by Jazz Hammonds for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Bloom Books. Diana Dixon has a busy summer and no time for tall, gorgeous hockey player Shane's shenanigans. Because you know what? If they shenan once, they'll shenan again. So she thinks she knows exactly who he is when he moves into her apartment building. But turns out Shane's sick of hookups and tired of being on the rebound after his long-term girlfriend called it quits. But when his ex comes back into the picture, he needs a plan. And who better to play his new girlfriend than his sassy new neighbor? So a fake relationship might be perfect for Diana's own ex issues, but Diana is used to living by the rules. Will she learn that when it comes to love, rules are meant to be broken? Make sure to check out The Dixon Rule by L. Kennedy. L. Kennedy is a New York Times and USA Today bestselling author with over a million copies of her books sold. So this is going to be another banger, y'all. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Bloom Books for sponsoring this episode. Yeah, um, it's th- this is the one I think. Well, maybe there's another one we were referring to when we we're talking about you. You outkicked your coverage in terms of the print run, mm-hmm. uh, the demand for it. Um, the people who are into dark academia and fantasy dark academia is an emerging genre. Like that's a. T- I don't know if this is a genre that 12, 15 years ago we would have known what you were talking about. <laughs> um, but now it becomes a locus of a lot of people's not just interest but reading identity. And this is pr- this is a self-aware, um, in a way, re- referring to a lot of other things that are out there. I think um, Kwong has even talked about this. And sometimes it's set in 1830 in uh, at Oxford, and there's a group of students coming in, and it's much like our world except there's magic, and the magic takes the form of this kind of silver working, where you can coax sil- silver into doing all sorts of things. But in order to do that, you have to master the art of translation. So there's an academic sort of nerd out on this that I really enjoy. Um, the audiobook must be fascinating because there's lots of language and things going on there. But the people who like this really like it. And I think this has a chance to build and to be one of the, like the cornerstones of the modern fantasy literary canon. Put it alongside the Night Circus or mm. Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell and the Secret History and those kinds of titles. Um, I guess it, it's dark game with the fantasy, which is a genre within a genre. It's really good. She is clearly a brilliant person. Um, I wouldn't mind if it was 150 pages shorter, uh, <laughs> but it's also the kind of thing that once you sink into it, you don't mind spending the time with these kids who come from all over the world. I mean, one thing she's doing is bringing inclusion to the world of like the magical school story. And you know what I'm talking about I do. here. 
Um, and then dealing with the real-world ramifications of colonialism and money and power and language and prestige. Um, it's, it's, in, it's enchanting. Um, and whether... It's, it's not going to be... Book clubs aren't going to read it, and that's fine. You don't have to be there. But I think this is the one like... What, what, am, I, what am I trying to think of? Yeah, it's going to be one that gets passed around of uh, kids who grew up liking fantasy or adults that like fantasy and like these kinds of stories are going to get it recommended or they're going to see it and it's going to be something that they lose themselves in for a week and they're like I, I just don't it doesn't have because there's not an adaptation I don't know that there will be for a lot of reasons but also it's going to take some time for people to read it you can't refer to it in fantasy circles yet and people know you can't say like mm. silver oh yeah you know so like it's like in silver working it's like you can't do that yet maybe someday you will be able to um but it's the closest thing I have to a genre pick. Um, I think it's the only genre pick. I, I mean, outside of like fiction, nonfiction. Everything else is pretty mainstream. I guess yeah. it ends with us as technically romance, but we've now transmogrified into something beyond our mere mortal genre. Classifications <laughs> with Colleen Hoover books. Yeah, I had Babel on the list because big surprise to anybody when a fantasy novel is selling so well that you can't keep it on the shelves and it's not mm. like with George R. R. Martin <laughs> on the cover right. of it. Um, not especially, right, not that we would know that. Uh, especially a big, like literally big, a long fantasy novel like that mm-hmm. that's a, a relatively unknown name. That's a, a hard sell for folks. It's a lot of work to do for kind of an unknown quantity. Um, so I'm really glad to hear, I was really glad when you read it and we were like, yes, the buzz is real. <laughs> the hype is yeah, true. Is. Uh, this is a great book. And I hope that we'll continue to see that. I think those books often do better in paperback than they did in hardcover and can have a much longer life. And since everything gets adapted or the the working assumption should be it will get adapted at some point because <laughs> that's just the, yeah. the world we live in now. That Not might be a peak adaptation. I don't know. This could be well, a casualty of like this would be a really expensive to make. Mm. Uh, or or at least in the modern maybe if you went back something like the discovery of witches slash the magician series right oh, those yeah. are like the lower yeah. dollar amount maybe you could do it that way but it's period right so you're gonna have to have all these oh, 18 that's true. horses mm. when you get horses and carriages i think your budget <laughs> and then magic i mean I have fun with that how much the bbc adaptation of jonathan strange and mr norrell was because that was kind of like middle big tv yeah you know, it was pre-peak adaptation. It was actually kind of early yeah. in in the adaptation. Yeah, it, it was, and I really liked that series. But it, it as it is in so much as like um, a magical story like that could be a drawing room story. They kind of mm, turned it into a mm-hmm. drawing room story, That's true. which I think you would have a hard time doing. Sounds like with. you can't. Oxford do it with itself this. is so much a eighteen uh, thirties Oxford is such a character itself. I mean, you can do whatever you want. You can make a bad version of whatever you want, but to do it well that sense of place you would you would really need to do. Maybe they can borrow the Enola Holmes sets, um, which are amazing, and just repurpose them. <laughs> that, would be, that would be fun. It's, you know, HBO passes the same actors around between all their series. I don't yeah. know why Netflix can't just share sets with everybody. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, sure. I mean, maybe Netflix will do it, and they can use some of their sets. That's um, great. I, I don't even think I said this at the top. I only have eight books. I didn't try to stretch One, it to two. ten. I sort of stopped, and I was like, I need to make a case for something. Um, mm-hmm. So that's all my fiction. I have two nonfiction. I'm done, Rebecca. So what I else have do you want to do? Do you have any other one, fiction left? I have one nonfiction, and then I am going to be interested in what your other 
nonfiction is and whether it's going to make me be like, oh, that was obvious. How did I not remember? Well, <laughs> maybe it's the stretch for I mean, we can talk about that. Let's wrap okay. up your fiction. We'll All right. Well, no, so I've done my fictions. I have the last one oh. I've done. We've Yeah, we've been through six titles and I have talked okay. about... All my fictions. I have one nonfiction, and that's my last book left. And it is I'm Glad My Mom Died by Jeanette McCurdy. The other big surprise of the year, um, I think surprise to the publisher, it it was thanks to TikTok that it went so big so quickly, and they they couldn't keep up with printing them. I think now you can find this. Uh, The audio book became really popular. I listened to it on audio. I get it. Like, it was... Eyes emoji the whole time. Eyebrows all the way up. Oh my God, this woman's mother was bananas. Like she could have called it, you think your mom's crazy? (laughs) Like it was, you know, stage mom to the like nth, nth degree. Uh, and, and just abusive parent that didn't realize, I think mom was well-intended and the daughter believed, Jeanette believed that her mother wanted the best for her and did not realize until she was like, out of her teens, maybe, yeah, it's either late teens or early 20s. I don't remember her age when she finally has the light bulb moment after her mom's death um, of like, oh, wow, not only was that stuff weird, it was really bad and really uncommon. Mm. And the way that mom wrapped it all up and I'm doing this because I love you is what abusers say to their kids. So I think the only thing that surprised me about the discourse around it was that I didn't see as many people as I would hope to see being like, hey, this is a book about child abuse. Like if Mm. you had, if you had an abusive parent in some way, or if you grew up with like a lot of gaslighting or a really controlling parent, I think this would be a tough read. Um, I can see a lot of ways in which it could have been triggering to somebody. Like it was, and I think the the title itself is a trigger warning, right? I mean, good lord. But it's also kind of funny, you know. And Jeanette McCurdy is funny, and the book is pink and yellow, and she's making a funny face on the cover, and so it looks like maybe it's going to be kind of a stand-up set about like moms. Am I right? And yeah. it is, it's not, it's, it's heavy and kind of astonishing for how long she goes in her life before she realizes how heavy it is. Um, I'm really glad it's out there. That moment it, when somebody writes a memoir where, where they tell the story about a horrible thing that they went through that they didn't realize was horrible and then how they came to understand it, it kind of feels like, I don't know, I've read a lot of cult memoirs and it kind of feels like that of like someone telling the story about the moment the scales fell from their eyes and they realized that this person who was saying, I'm asking you to do all these things because it'll be good for you and just trust me and do it. When they realize that actually that person is bad or maybe even evil and these things are wrong or harmful, that's a powerful moment. And I think it's a public service to talk about how how folks come to those revelations because Jeanette McCurdy can't be the only one out there who's got a parent doing stuff like this. And if you're in a relatively closed family system and a small social circle where you don't get to see how other families work... It's you know, it's going to take a while to get your eyes open. So I'm, I'm really glad she wrote it. I think it was really, really brave. I can't say I enjoyed listening to it because I just spent the whole time being like, oh, honey. <laughs> you know, like, oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, you poor kid. Oh, my God. That was so much and for so long. And she writes about it, like, so matter-of-factly. I think because she experienced it matter-of-factly until she finally realized 
it wasn't good, which does make it pretty different from some of the other I had a bad parent memoirs because those often come wrapped in like from the start you can tell this person's been in therapy for a while they've done their work around this yeah they they could feel in the moment that this thing was bad and wrong and they just didn't know how to get away from their family or they knew that it was dangerous to them to push against it and she's like so caught up in it and so sheltered because of her family life and her career that it takes a really long time to see it. And I just had a like, wow, this is, it's tough. She had a tough life. It's a tough book for just kind of how extensive the stuff is. And like, really, this is a book about a a person who was abused for 18 years. And and maybe we throw, throw, throw is not, maybe we include that into an evolving theory of the sort of, um, normalization is not the right word, but the, Destigmatizing. Dees. Oh yeah. I don't. Is it even? St- it's, it's 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 somewhat yeah, different. It's like um. I'm trying. Like I gotta n- think of a word, but nuancing. the process of incorporating mm. these stories into different with different tones, different genres, different times, different placements. Um, and this is this is we, we've seen stories like this of being abused right as a kid. But it's the cover would be a lot different. It would have a different mm-hmm. story. It'd have much more of a somber backdrop for what. It, and this is another way of saying trying to talk about these things that is so common in the full expression of people's experiences of them. And this is another this is another entry into that. And I think that's that's super fascinating. I I, I was trying to play this game. Let's say I had to pick one book of the year, mm. and it has to be front list. I think I'm probably picking this one. Interesting. For that reason, because it's, it's yeah. participating in a larger discourse, and the phenomenon piece matters to me when I'm picking a book like that. And this is yeah. the only real phenomenon that was new to us this year. Yeah, this feels new in the way that the phenomenon around the Glass Castle felt new when it came yeah. out all those many years ago now by Jeanette right. Walls, and right. that really paved the way for Educated by Tara Westover. Um, mm-hmm. I think this book ends up standing in kind of that collection uh, with a different, uh, just a different kind of story about a really complex and painful family life. And it is a different kind of story than like um, Somebody's Daughter by Ashley Ford or Danielle Henderson's memoir about her parents. And and we get lots of those. I think there's need for all of these, maybe integration Mm -hmm. and the adding of nuance. And I don't know, it's like there's more crayons in our well, it's a diversification now. of yeah, it's a diversification it. of mm-hmm. of narratives about yeah. them and how and diversification it's, of approach. Yeah, it's really powerful and interesting, and I think a lot of people are going to pick up or be willing to pick up. I'm glad my mom died. Who aren't necessarily turned on by a, a right. family life memoir that is obviously going to be tough and sad from the get go. Mm-hmm. Like McCurdy is like, yeah. hey, I'm going to be funny while I tell you this. You know, it's like the the Instagram joke of like, are you funny or did you have a happy childhood? And she's right. she's right in there. Okay, so um, what is my, your last my, one? Well, you maybe looked at this, and again, I'm I'm more. I think this was a big deal in the year, but it's not that big of a deal. I think in the kind of circles we travel in, it's very well regarded, which is going to be good for the future, and I think it's going to be readable. For, for decades, and I included the 90s by Chuck Klosterman, Rebecca. Oh! I think a lot of people read this and liked it, and it does something important and fascinating, especially for people of our generation who, frankly, are kind of taste-making 
at this mm-hmm. point in our lives. And I think in five, ten years, people can still, it's like a historical document in its own way, and a historical document of, of, um, of the times. And the thing I really like that Klosterman said about is he wanted to capture not only what happened and think about what happened, but tried to capture what it felt like to live through mm-hmm. it, which I thought was a really cool. And I think for my money, he did a, I mean, of course, one person can't do it exhaustively. But if one person is going to do it, I'm going to do one. I think this passes the test for me. It's going to get gifted a lot this year. It's going to be on paperback. It's going to be on paperback tables. I, so I, this is, I don't know that I, maybe I'm buying low or I, I'm getting a value pick here if I get 10. But I think this captures it. A lot of people who read this really like, yeah, that book, that book, that book. Um, so I hope it yeah. continues to, to do that. You're absolutely right in your guess. I did look at it. And I yeah. want this to be a book of the year. I want you to be right. Mm-hmm. I want to like come to this call next year and be like, oh man, the closer is still going. We are going to be talking about it for a while. Like I'm going to be talking about it for a while. You are. We both right. really loved it. I would love to see that be true. I didn't talk myself into putting it on my list. I really, really wanted to. And so I'm just going to root for you to be right on this one. Well, here's the thing. I mean, and this is one of the ways in which if there were an award in for say cultural criticism this could this is never going to win the history or nonfiction no. awards it's just not yeah. going to because of reasons we all know and i don't and i think that hurts a book like this and one and we've talked about this before one of the reasons you and i especially as younger nerds weren't reading as much nonfiction is because the national book award winners was like a 500 page <laughs> Part one of a W.B. Du Bois biography, which is great, but it's just one part of the story. And this, and the one we've used before is Born a Crime by Trevor Noah. If we had read that at 17, we'd have a much, we would have had a much different relationship to nonfiction earlier. Or Mary Roach. Yeah, there's there's a million of these, right? And because of the way that the sort of the award system is, is put together, these kinds of books take some time to become things people know about. Um, they, 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 there is no, this is never going to pick, get picked by Oprah. Cultural criticism just isn't. It's, that's fine. That's not what she does. Nor is it going to be picked by Reese. Who, who's picking these? Who's picking these kinds of books? Um, wh- where is the shine coming from? And that it did even what it did without that's really true. any way to get shine, I think is maybe augurs better for it than, I think that's actually a sign of more strength rather than weakness. Um, mm-hmm. That even so many people read. So yeah, I would love to t- see that. To talk us into it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, there you go. I'm buying it. I'm buying it. Um, I would love to see that work out, and I really would love some reconsideration, I guess, from the powers that be at the big end of year lists and the big awards. Yeah. For like, our media landscape is bigger and more interesting and more diverse than it's ever been. And as you were saying, like nine million page biography of W. E. B. Du Bois, that's important. And also, people thinking critically about this media landscape yes. is also really important. And thinking critically about how we got here in the '90s was such an interesting moment because it was right before all this technology. But I find so much value in the people that are looking at what does all this mean to us right now, all this media that we're in, and mm-hmm. I can't wait. Like, I think it'll be fascinating in 2042 for somebody to write a book about the first two decades of this century yes. and what happened with streaming media, what happened with social media, how did that shape what we consume, the kind of art that we watch, the way that we talk about the world, the way that we talk to each other. It's really valuable, and for someone to do it, as you were saying, like accessibly and from a lived experience that 
people who also came through that time can relate to and see themselves in is really, really meaningful. And I think just also a really hard trick. There are some ways in which writing a a pretty dry, very dense academic tome, that's a thing you can be trained to do. There are like standard methods of approaching that kind of work. There's a voice to take on to create a work of that type that will get you respect in academic circles or among the Pulitzer committees, all that kind of thing. And to do what Klosterman does and be like, let's talk about this in an elevated, normal person way <laughs> is right. unusual. It's also not too light because you can go the other way right. of this, right? Like, yeah. look how look how trash, look how junky and trashy everything is. Right. And Klosterman will take seriously, um, you know, Monica Lewinsky, Clinton scandals, and also MTV VJs of the '90s, and take not to say that they're both equally important. But they both can be subject to a kind of inquiry that's neither too heavy and abstract, nor is it glib. Mm-hmm. And I think that's cool. I think that's, a, that's where think most of cool us live too. our lives, frankly, that yeah. like to read books. Most of us live in that kind of pocket. Um, so anyway, there's the 90s by Chuck Holsterman. Maybe, maybe I'm trying to manifest it because that works, right? The secret's real. <laughs> Listen, if we're going to manifest anything, let us manifest Chuck Holsterman <laughs> being taken more seriously. Yeah, sure. I mean, he's doing fine. So it's, it's, again, this is not like outsider art or something like that. <laughs> I just, there were, you know, even something like Hunger by Roxane Gay, which yeah, is sort of like, yeah. it's, is it essay? It's memoir sort of. But there's all kinds of books like this where... Or like Margot Jefferson a couple fit. years ago. Yeah, yeah. I guess mem- memoirs have... They get some of their own stuff. Um, that's a little... Memoirs and autobiography. But it, even even so. Um, anyway, so there we go. That's it. Did you have anything else? You're done? I had little like... I think I just had to say Sarah J. Moss's name out loud. <laughs> you know, like... The book itself wasn't really a story of the year. The Court of what Thorns, Court of Thorns, Crown of Thorns. I don't know something with thorns and roses. That's the series. But, I don't know. There was a new installment this year. I think us yeah. not knowing it is all I need to do to wave it away. Right, but just big on TikTok. Also, she got banned in a bunch of places or attempted yeah. bans in a bunch of places. Sarah J. Moss was in the water this year. Did not break through to my real list of books of the year, but I felt like I just needed to say her name and acknowledge that some stuff went on with her here. I was trying to look for any other sort of like dark horse candidates. I was having a hard time. I mean, unfortunately, I couldn't even... The Sea of Tranquility to Paradise, Candy House Troika, which I am so glad to have had this year. Mm -hmm. I don't think any of them I can do right now. Yeah, I can't, I, I, can't, and I can't do them anymore. I had the same thoughts about Candy House and Sea of Tranquility that I really wanted those to be stories of the year. And Sea of Tranquility had a lot of that feeling about it around the time that it came out. But here at the end of the year, several months after its publication, folks aren't really talking yeah. about it anymore. And if we're no. if it's not an enduring story, even within the year that it came out, we just I couldn't justify putting it on the list. A couple others I looked at. Um, I think you have queued up The Maid. For, did you read it on the flight? I did. I read it on the flight, yes. Let's talk about that real quick because it was on Amazon's Best Books of the Year. It came out early. I was looking at the reviews just to get some sense of, because you're not going to know sales, 51,000 reviews, more than Book Lovers by Emily Henry, which oh, I also wow. kind of stared mm-hmm. at for this list. And it was also the Goodreads Choice Award winner for Best Mystery Thriller, which is a popular genre. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a case for The Maid, except that I'm not sure genre, genre fiction like this, I don't sure it adds up to very much historically yeah. you know mm-hmm. i mean 
what did you think of the bait? Rebecca, I guess we'll probably do two. It was for me a perfect plain read. Um, Not, see, there you go. Good job, me. <laughs> yeah, good job, you. You've nailed it on my plain reads a couple times this year, so yeah. you get to keep that job. Um, mm-hmm. It was, yeah, just a interesting, suspensey thriller, not super violent. So I, I know there's a, a big market for that. And I wonder if that yeah. is su- some right. of what's going on with its popularity. Um, I've seen some interesting criticism around the way that Nita Prose uh, represents or presents the narrator who we, we are given to believe is neurodivergent, but doesn't, there's not a label given to it, but she talks about herself with an understanding that she doesn't experience the world and communication and interpersonal interactions in the same way that typical people do. Um, she knows this about herself and she hears other people comment on it. And so there are some, I think, um, valid and interesting criticisms from own, the own voices community around neurodivergence there. I also really understand why it was super popular. Um, yeah. It, yeah. And, an interesting voice, a not vi- very violent mystery, kind of a different take and she's easy to root for. Yep. Yeah. Again, it, I'm not sure it adds up to much. Um, is it the beginning of a great career for, for Nita prose? Maybe. Um, I think this is a hard one to do again. I don't know mm-hmm. if you go back to this particular well, I, I, I do not I do not look forward to the adaptation of this and the casting Ooh, and all yeah. of the discussions about how you're going to do that. But that's not my problem, except mm-hmm. I, I hope people are careful and, and treat this carefully. I, I guess we should be clear for those interested. This is not a Rain Man, Forrest Gump representation. Right, right. Whatever else it is, it's not that. Um, I think I've seen both sides. I, it's hard to know these days at all, really. What kind of own you can get is does one own voices or two or three own voices criticism mean something? And then there's other people in that community saying, actually, you know what, this is kind of whatever. And, you know, there's something to do. I I don't know how you do that. Is there is there one? um, So that's an interesting thing going forward, too, as we get different kinds of representations, increasingly so. But it's something to be aware of. And if you're sensitive to that, um, I, I haven't seen a good piece on it, by the way. I don't really I count don't tweets anymore. I, I would yeah. give me an essay. If I mean, what is the what is the slate essay or 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 wherever else that might be? I don't think we have one on on book ride. I don't think it's written about it quite in those ways for us. But um, it's pretty it's pretty important, I think, to make a case either way and have a, a multiple perspectives on something like this because even this amount of talking about it for us suggests that maybe it does deserve a place on this because kind of like lessons in chemistry, it's taking something sort of familiar and doing something pretty unfamiliar with mm-hmm. it. And people are really responding to that. Yeah. So that was, yeah, that, was I, that was my other, took a, took a hard look at it. Yeah, I think that that's an interesting one to consider for this as well. Um, Anything you're surprised we're not list. talking about? We got to run oh. here. Right? Anything you're surprised hmm. that didn't, didn't end up? I, again, I mentioned the Troika. I couldn't I believe that any one of those in, cut through. Yeah, but. not in particular titles. It's kind of notable that there's not a big business or self-help book on here. I was looking um, for that. What, what Atomic the, Habits is still dominating, so nothing new has Maybe taken we should have done place. that. I mean, in the, in the Colleen Hoover world, that thing still is sucking up all the oxygen for people who, who are on the Delta shuttle from um, LaGuardia <laughs> to, JF, or, uh, to uh, Dulles or whatever. Yeah. Um, interesting to see. Okay. All right, An interesting year. Well, those are the books of the year. Always interesting. Um, we'll talk to you later. If we missed anything, shoot us an email, podcast at bookriot.com or, or something to consider. I'm especially interested in, like, the things you thought were going to – if you would have bet at the beginning of the year, things you would have thought. Um, I didn't go back and look at our drafts, but I, I didn't really think of anything. I did stare at book lovers 
kind of mm-hmm. to represent I thought that. about that one, too. Both Emily Henry, but that genre of really the ascendance of commercial romance. Um, but, again, this is, not, this is not going in a time capsule for scholars of the future to open up. But the Internet is forever, so they could listen to this if they'd like. As always, you can find our everything we talked about in this and other episodes of the Book Riot Podcast, bookriot.com slash listen. And we'll be back with something else next week. What's our last, what are we wrapping up with? Do you remember oh, off the top of let me mind? tell you, and I have that on the calendar. We are actually doing a year in review next week. So oh, surprise. Oh, there it is. Okay. Okay, there we go. We are doing the year in review. Um, and I think there was a breaking story this week that might make it. So that's what you call a tease. Mm-hmm. A breaking story this morning, if you're paying attention yeah. to the bookish internet. Um, thank you, Rebecca, as always. Yeah, have a good one.